Okay. Are we doing there? Test, test? Not too bad. Okay, so she claims that the, the, the tent of meeting was for everybody and that you just go into the tent of meeting and the cloud of God will come down um, and you hear from God. Well, which it's not even true for the Old Testament, which is what I proved in my thing yesterday. But then she makes this application. Every one of us can have our own personal tent of meeting, like the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and we can go in there and God's cloud was going to come down. Now, you don't have to have a literal tent. It's probably an imaginary one. But God's cloud will come down and give you new revelations. All right? Now, um, I showed that to all the people. Here's what she claims. And then I said, now let's see what the Bible says. And I went back and started in Deuteronomy and expounded Deuteronomy 18, basically the whole chapter. And in Deuteronomy, we were talking about that in Sunday school. If you were here that time when Keith was reading and it said, the, the people said, have Moses go up to me lest we die. And, and God says, and they asked a good thing. It was not good for the people because they die if they go into the presence of God. So there needs to be a mediator. So the mediator was Moses. Now, when you look at Deuteronomy, or, or, so I started Deuteronomy 18, then I went from there to Exodus 33, the passage she was citing, and she was using the NIV, and it was, it's a little ambig, ambiguous in any version, but it sort of, sort of sounds like the people went out to go to the tent of meeting, but if you read the whole context, and I looked it up in some commentaries, was that they went out because Moses went to the tent of meeting, they went out there, and Moses heard from God, and that's where they heard from God, from Moses. Because at the end of it, Joshua's left there to guard the tent so nobody would go in there. All right, So only Moses could go in the tent of meeting. And the tent of meeting was a precursor to the tabernacle. And as you know, once they created the tabernacle, um, Moses' uh, mediatorial role lived on all the way up to the time of Jesus. And it lived on through the Levitical system that God created through Moses. So when they created the Levitical system and they, and they made the tabernacle, then nobody could go in except for the high priest on the Day of Atonement. So this idea that this tent where God's cloud comes is as anybody can just wander in there and get their own revelations directly from God is not supported by anything that happened in the Old Testament. So I, I went Deuteronomy 18, Exodus 33, and then I, I showed passage after passage where it says only Moses and that, the, and that not the people could go directly in the presence of God. And that was true on Sinai, it was true in the Ten of Meeting, and there was a whole bunch. And then I showed passages where people didn't like that, and they tried to do it anyhow. And so uh, what happened wasn't a good thing. One of the most profound ones was Numbers uh, 12, where there was a story where Miriam and Aram, Aaron were disgusted with Moses because he married a Cushite woman. And, and so Miriam says... Um, why should Moses be the one going in to, uh, going to hear from God? I think we can do it just as well ourselves. And so then God said, okay, Miriam, uh, you come to the tent of meeting. See, that's where you go to meet God. So Miriam and Aaron went to the tent of meeting, and Miriam turned leprous. She got leprosy. Yeah, the, cloud came down. the cloud came down, and she got leprosy. And I, they decided after that that maybe it was okay for Moses to be the one. <laughs> yeah, maybe this wasn't such a good idea that, that we're going to go into the tent of meeting. Okay? And, yes. And she had mercy. Yeah, others died because there was these guys that had the strange fire. And then, and, and they died. And then Korah and uh, three other individuals came up with the idea also that it really wasn't fair that Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. 
They thought, why can't we ourselves go directly to God and get our own revelations, have our own word from God, and we'll have the authority without Moses. So God said, okay, assemble yourselves. And what happened to them? <laughs> yeah, the, the, it says the earth opened up and they dropped alive into Sheol. The, the King James probably uses the word hell because it does regularly for the word Sheol. So, right into hell, don't pass go, don't collect $200. <laughs> so, um, now when you read these stories, who would get the idea that this tent of meeting is something for everybody, or that we could even have one now. So then, after going through that stuff, and it was all Scripture for an hour, Scripture, 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 then I went into Hebrews, and if you've been here while we studied Hebrews, you'd know exactly what Hebrews said. But I showed from Hebrews that God said that he would speak to someone. He said in Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up someone like you, Moses, Moses said, or someone like me. He'll be God's prophet. When he comes, listen to him. So then we went to Hebrews and showed that the claim was that that person was Jesus. After being some time, spent some time in John and Mark, we went to the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter wanted to have three tents of meeting. And, and, but instead of these three tents of meeting, why, why the tent of meeting? Because that's where you go to hear from God. So Peter thought, if we had Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, now here we got three prophets of God, we can go to whichever, whichever one we want when we need a, some new word from God. We'll just have some tents of meeting here. And, and then when, and after he said that dumb idea, voice from heaven said, no, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The, the cloud, and there was a cloud. So there's all these analogies to the old covenant. The cloud, the voice from heaven, the word listen to him, which is from Deuteronomy 18. So that, that is just very profound that Jesus is that one and he's the mediator and you only can come to God through him. There's no other way. And then Hebrews said he came and spoke his words to us and they were confirmed to those witnesses, the apostles. So now we have the only true words from God that are the uh, uh, content of the new covenant are spoken by Jesus and his apostles. And that's it. Okay, that's what we know. And then I went through Hebrews saying, showing that Jesus, by the way, Jesus' body was the tent of meeting. He tabernacled amongst us. Remember Ryan was talking about that? So I included that. And then he went, and it says in Hebrews that he entered into the tabernacle that God pitched and not man. That's in Hebrews. And it was the heavenly one in which we've been studying. So then the conclusion was, if you are going to go into your own tent of meeting and get your own revelations, you're like... Um, Miriam, you're like Korah, you're like, you are in rebellion against God and you shall be judged. And I ended up in Hebrews uh, 12, where we're studying right now, saying that if they, if, if this judgment that came on people that challenged Moses under the Old Testament was severe, what's going to happen to people who challenge Jesus in the New Covenant? It'll be more severe judgment. So, we made a very strong case, and Brian Flynn did a great job. He, he just keeps getting better. Uh, he had an outstanding presentation. Then I came back and sh- I gave him some examples of how severe it is. I, I showed how uh, Greg Boyd practices necromancy, how he talked to his dead grandmother, and, and his dead mo- grandmother apparently got converted after her death in the story. It's just really bad. And, and we showed a video clip, uh, we showed a video clip of Christian Yoga from ABC News. And, and, and basically gave a very severe warning that this is not 
This is playing with fire. This is really, really bad. You can't do this. You cannot say, I'm going to come to God the way I decide and ignore what God said about how we come to Him. And it's, it's apostasy. That's what it's called. Well, no sooner, you know, so we had a, I may redo this here. I'm so sorry that I just didn't invite everybody and packed out their place there, but, um, uh, because it was it was new material, and I think that we need to get that out. And their lighting was really bad, so I don't know what the DVD will look like. But anyhow, as soon as I get back, I got Elizabeth. I got a email from Elizabeth, and here Chuck Swindoll is teaching this apostasy as well. I'm telling you, there's hardly anybody safe. Swindoll is teaching that we can have these new new practices that they gleaned out of Catholic monasticism and get closer to God. And the reason I call it apostasy, well, ask, uh, do you know more about that? I mean, you said it to me. He has written a book, and, and this book is just laced with contemplative methods. And he's endorsing Foster and Willard, people like that. Okay, now... The, the other side thinks that we're just being melodramatic. Or sometimes they say people like Brian Flynn are just have an overly sensitive conscience because he used to be in a new age. I mean, that's what they think. They think this is no big deal and you guys are just overreacting. But I, I think that we've got a way of dealing with it now that's more powerful than we've ever had before. And I want to, I want to do it again. And that's using the thing in Hebrews here and pointing out that when, if we don't want to come by the terms that God said, and listen to Jesus, whose words are authoritative, that we're actually in danger of apostasy. And then they say, well, how can these nice people like Beth Moore, she's so charming, she's so wonderful, how could she be an apostate? Well, I don't know. How can Chuck Swindoll and how can all these other people be doing this? I don't know. All I can say is Jan Markell is right when she says, I think we're seeing end times delusion. Yes. I think that comment, that criticism of Brian Flynn, uh, you can use their own argument uh, against them when saying that he's oversensitive. No, he's experienced this. He has experienced these things that, that now that uh, they say that you can only come to this by experiential, uh, by, by experiencing something. Well, that's what he has, he has done. Yeah, yeah. That's what I've done. So now we, we can come to you, to anybody here, and say, I've experienced this, and yeah. I know what I speak. Right. Yeah, Sam has gone through some version of that, too, and he can ex- explain it to you. Well, anyhow, Brian had some great arguments, and we had a question and answer, and, he, and, and he, they asked him certain things, and, he, and they said, well, yeah, but can't, aren't these things like Christian version of it? You know, uh, we don't call it that. In other words, we don't call it TM. We call it contemplative prayer. And so Brian was great. He said, you know, you're doing exactly the same thing. I thought my favorite part that he added since, since the first time he did this was the be still and know that I'm God. He put a slide up there that says be still and know my God, that I'm God. That's their proof text that you have to silence your mind. To be still means to have a blank mind so God can put his thoughts into your mind. And, 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 and Brian says, well, if you're going to take that literally like they're trying to do, he says, I just invented a brand new prayer myself. And he goes like this. Okay, God, I'm still... You're going to speak to me now? If it's true, and it just means an emptying of your mind, well, then it could be my interpretation of be still bodily is just as good. Yeah, yeah. so he sits there like a statue and says, this is, this is how I'm interpreting. And, and, and he said that would be just as valid as what they're doing with the text because they're not even trying. Then he put up the true meaning of the text. 
And he did a really good job of expounding that text. Be still know what I've got. So this whole thing. Oh, this is yours. I'm sorry, Elizabeth. I almost walked off with your heresy. <laughs> That's my heresy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> it's the whole premise is a, a misuse of scripture. Now let's get us to Hebrews now. But what uh, this sort of thing shows us? What lesson should we learn? It really does matter what the Bible says and what it means. And as MacArthur said, the meaning of the Bible is the Bible. You get the Bible wrong, you get the meaning wrong, you think you got the authoritative words of God, but you don't. You have errant words of man, and you're going away from God, and you don't even know it. So you take one verse, be still unknown, I'm God, misinterpret it, and create a whole new religion out of one verse. So every passage is important to know what it means. Yes. Was there people in the congregation that were on board with the youth pastor? And then after it was all over, was there any uh, feedback from the people in attendance uh, that were trying to, that, that refuted what you were saying? What was the well, there, according to a friend of mine who goes to that congregation, a lot of the other side boycotted it. There were just a few that actually came. There were some elders that were like kind of on the fence that were there, and they seemed to like it very well. I mean, we really gave them some strong arguments from the Scripture. But, you know, I think that people have a real problem because they haven't been trained well enough in the Gospel. And all of this stuff ultimately is a failure of faith. Now, let's go back to Hebrews here. Okay, i got to introduce our passage here. Hebrews 12:26. See, the warning at the end of Hebrews is that God's a consuming fire. And if you, if you don't want to come to Him on His terms and listen to His voice, the speaking through Jesus, okay, the one true spokesperson of the new covenant, that what you're going to do is come under severe judgment. You're going to be like those people that walked into the tent of meeting and they weren't supposed to be there. You're going to get burned up. And so that, it's very, very severe. Uh, I was just reading uh, William Lane's uh, summary of this chapter. Oh, it's just fabulous! It's unbelievable. Uh, and but it, does, it but it gives us um, in the context. Every time there's a severe warning in Hebrews, it ends with pastoral encouragement. He never leaves them just warned. He leaves them encouraged. He said, "We've received the kingdom can be, cannot be shaken." You know, the other thing that Brian said is that it kind of opened up people saying all roads lead to God. He kind of refuted that. He says, in a way, all roads do lead to God. He goes, yeah. Yeah, all roads do lead for God. Either you'll come to God and be blessed, or you come to God and burn up. But one <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and it, kind of, it, was, it was amazing the way Brian and I kind of worked together because he, he showed these New Agers saying all paths lead to God. That's their belief. And then when I was doing mine, I got into Hebrews here, and I said, yeah, all paths do lead to God, either to damnation or salvation, but you will end up before God. So you can think of that one sometime when somebody tells you that. <laughs> you can say it this way. Because all paths lead to God, you better get right with Him now. Right? <laughs> That's a good way to say it. Because if you end up in front of God and you're not dressed in the righteousness of Christ, that's going to be very, very bad. Now, about these warnings against apostasy. Remember Hebrews 6, for example? It said if anybody... Um, uh, will, goes on willfully sinning. Um, no, that's Hebrews 10, I think. Um, but, but all these warnings, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12, 
if you read them, after the warning comes encouragement. In Hebrews 6, he says, but I'm persuaded of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. Or in Hebrews 10, he goes on to say, well, you took joyfully. Remember the former days when you were took joyfully the spoiling of your goods and so on, so that the, the, the God has been. Remember what he did do in your life. And here it says, God's going to shake the earth and the heaven. He's a consuming fire, all these terrible things. But we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There's pastoral encouragement. So both things are necessary. We need warnings, but we also need encouragement that God is working and the gospel is true and that Jesus is our mediator and that he is going to dress us in his righteousness and his blood has washed away our sins. But why the warnings? Why the warnings in Hebrews? Because people have weakness in their faith and they have a hard time believing that this Jesus they can't see, the blood that they never saw, that was shed once for all, the heavenly tabernacle that they can't tent, tent that they can't see, that, that God pitched, all of these things, you can't see it. Alright? And you have to believe it by faith. And so what they're wanting to add to, to try to, to uh, subsidize their unbelief, so to speak, uh, or, or accessorize their unbelief, they want to add some sort of experience that makes them feel close to God. That, that, there's a reason for this. And Brian was talking about that yesterday too. He says the people aren't getting the truth. They're not getting the gospel. They, they're not, I don't know why I'd want something more because this is so, so exciting. I don't know. I love what coming to church and, and, and a fellowship and, and, and worship and, and hearing the word and all those sort of things. But see, they aren't, they haven't been getting it. Gradually has been taken away from people through the seeker movement and through uh, watering down the message. And so the powerful preaching of the word, of uh, music that glorifies God or the man, stuff like that has been taken away from them and it leaves them empty and dry and leaves them feeling like, I need more. And Brian Flynn was talking about visiting some of these uh, meetings. He went and heard Father Keating. He's gone to the emergent church. And Brian said, what they do is they say, um, how many here wish they were closer to God or things like that? And Or how many people don't feel close to God? So almost everybody puts their hands up. And then he says, well, then we're going to tell you how you can overcome that. And what they offer them is mysticism. And you go into your little tent of meaning and you get into an altered state and you hear God's voice, maybe. You might be hearing Satan's voice, but they don't seem to concern themselves about that. And they say, well, we're sincere Christians. Why would God give us anything bad when we're going to him? Well, the reason he would allow something bad to come is because you didn't come to him on his terms. You decided the terms. You made up your own practice. And you did that because you didn't want to be satisfied with the high priest who's in heaven. Now, isn't that an affront to God? Mike. I think part of this, though, is uh, different teachers or, or pastors or you know, like radio celebrities. They, you know, they they they've gotten a lot of uh, acclaim or attention because of uh, their preaching of the word, you know, through the years. And I think they always want to, you know, at some point you have to guard that. Uh, you don't love the attention you get from preaching the word so that they feel they have to come up with something new, something innovative, something different, something, uh, you know, that, that singles them out. And, uh, 
you know, the message of the Bible is, you know, it's, it's been preached before. There's nothing new under the sun. And, uh, you know, the new, the good news came with Christ. He was the good news. And until he comes again, we don't have no uh, other good news. We have this news. And, you know, it, yeah. You know, it's funny, you, you learn things when you were a child in the 50s or the 40s or, or whenever you grew up. And now, all of a sudden, these basic truths are different in the 90s, they're different in 2006. No, they're not different. It's just, it's just more fooling around with the human imagination and human pride and human adulation. Okay, I agree. You know, you know what? Did some of you get that book by James Montgomery Boyce? Yeah. What did you think? Excellent. Is that a fab? We ordered another case, by the way. Um, but that proves that shows you that it doesn't have to be that way, Mike. What you're saying? There's a man dying of cancer who's been in the ministry for 30, 40 years. He was only 62 when he passed away, and after all of this career. All of his studies, all of the things that he did, it all comes down to the gospel of grace. Yes. Yeah, it's a, yeah, so, it is sufficient. And exactly that's what Boyce was saying is that the attack today is against the sufficiency of scripture. Uh, rather, the inerrancy, they don't even talk about it. They just say it's not sufficient. It, I, everything God gave me in here, it's not enough. I need something else, they say. Um, the, the, the whole thing with the mysticism is that you are in charge of God. God is at your feet. You call him when you want him. And as opposed to us going to the foot of the cross. Yeah, I know. Well, absolutely. So, the, I think, uh, uh, beloved, we... we we are in a fiery ordeal in, in the evangelical movement. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come upon you. We are living in the days of unprecedented apostasy amongst people that know, should know what the truth is and actually could tell you the gospel if you put a gun to their head and asked them. But they're not, they don't see it as exciting enough to base their ministry on. So they go back to Catholic mysticism, which destroyed the Catholic Church and made a need for the Reformation, and there they find their practices rather than the Bible. I think it's just interesting we're talking about apostasy now in, in Hebrews and how we're to avoid it. And the, the way that we kind of closed the first hour was that uh, we, there, God has a given false prophets. There's a God-given ministry to false prophets that God has given them, and their job is to lead apostates out of the church. Yeah. That was how we closed it. it. Almost people almost gasped when when I did that God, from Deuteronomy 13. Because God gives God gives false teachers, they will lead just people, and they'll lead the apostates out because people will follow them that aren't loving the truth. This will be heard. That was very compelling. Yeah, because it says uh, the Lord is testing you to see if you love. The Lord allows a false prophet to come because He's testing you to see if you love the Lord. MacArthur said the same thing. He says. Robert Schuller, Purpose Driven Life, all this stuff, it's a test of your discernment. And if you fall for it, you don't have discernment. And, and Deuteronomy says it's a test whether you love God. Is there, is there a scripture reference for that? Yeah, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. 
Yeah, Deuter- yeah, Keith will read it. Deuter- if you want to look at that, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3, because it warns about someone who comes and actually does a sign or wonder that comes true. This is, these are miracle working guys, not that Charlotte says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams rises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder comes true concerning what he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods who you have not known, mystical ones, and let us serve them, the ones that come to your tents of meeting inside. You shall not listen to the words of the prophet and that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's the first commandment. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments and listen to his voice, which you know is comes from scripture. We don't go to tents of meeting. And serve him and cling to him. So if you have guys that are that are promoting new tents of meeting, they have a job in life. God has given them that job. He even sometimes gives them supernatural power to accomplish that job. And their job is to lead the apostates away from the church. Yep. It's a test. It's a test to see if you love God. If you love God, you will be not only satisfied, you will be overjoyed to have the means of grace that God's provided. If you love God, you'll want the gospel. If you love God, you will want his word. If you love God, you're so sad. It's not a matter. I mean, it's an affront to God to ever say you're dissatisfied with what he provided. Is that an affront? Well, I don't like just praying. I want, um, you know, we talked about this. What does it say in the Bible would happen if we pray, if we come in the name of Christ? It says he'll listen to us. What they're saying, we're not satisfied that God listens to us. We want him to give us new revelations. We want him to talk. We, we, want to have, we want to have our own time of meeting, and we don't want Jesus to be the mediator. We don't want Moses to be the mediator. I'm going to mediate my own direct, immediate contact with God without going through God's mediator because that's more uh, desirable. It's, it's apostasy. It's rebellion. Yes? Yeah, they, want, they want to change the terms. Yeah, change the terms of the covenant. Negotiation. <laughs> one of the things that we have no claim on God. Yeah, we, wow. We've got nothing that we can go and demand of Him. We can't negotiate with Him. We're, we're a silent partner in this thing. He's talking <laughs> the bride of Christ. Uh, you know, he compares it to um, like a wedding. The only thing he said was that when. You know, it's, it's different because a man and a woman give and take to each other. But he said, when the bride comes, the bride will be filled with Christ. And the, the blessings will go from Christ into the bride. And the, the bride has nothing to offer. The bride comes empty. So, you know, Yeah, we have nothing to offer. Yeah. You can't set up terms for yourself. Yeah. And, well, hey, did you get my CIC article yet? Anybody? It's, I, my article's on that. I'm, I'm, I, the whole article's against synergism, like we can contribute something. All right. I gotta do this. We got, we gotta do one verse here. Hebrews, tw- <laughs> Hebrews 12, 26. And his voice shook earth then, but now he's promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Now this is some interesting theology. It's a, it's a very Jewish type of, of argument. And it's, it comes from, uh, some terminology in the book of Haggai. So, um, who has a good, strong reading voice? Denise, could you um, read Haggai 2, 6 through 9? 
It's, it's in the Old Testament. I, <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> six through nine. Two, six through nine. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the, de- to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this later temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, so on the, the prophecy about shaking the nations is what's referenced here. And there is a number of grammatical links to that in the Old Testament. And it had to do with judgment. So when God comes in judgment, all the nations are shaken. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is sort of a Jewish midrash type of way of, of pulling things together that have similar terminology, is that uh, the previous metaphor was between the one speaking from earth and the one speaking from heaven. Moses spoke from earth. The earth shook at Sinai. There, that's the idea of shaking. But we have a greater one who's in heaven speaking to us. Now, not new revelations, but through the covenant that we've been given, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. So he's speaking in a sense that the terms of the covenant are speaking to us and calling us to account. And so there was an analogy, but the, the one in heaven is greater than the one on earth. And now the analogy is the shakeable is lesser than the unshakable. The unshakable is better. And so let me read this whole context here. Yet yeah, once more I will shake not only the earth but the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes removing those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that things cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Now, in the, in the Haggai passage, there was an allusion to God setting up a kingdom. And so, uh, the context is that God's judgment is going to come and it's going to be universal. It's going to shake all nations and it's going to, and those things that are shakeable are going to be removed. And this is the end of the age. It'll be destroyed. And that God will set up a totally unshakable kingdom with Christ sitting on the throne. And the encouragement part of this is that we've already received that kingdom in the sense of we've entered by faith. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. I don't recall the passage, but isn't there a verse that says that he's going to start in the church too? Uh, Judgment begins with the household of God, it says. Right. So when the shakings come, it's sort of like life in, 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 in the discipline of the Lord. When really tough, hard things come into our lives and it shakes us up, just by analogy, it proves whether we have anything that is unshakable. Is that right? And sometimes we may actually wonder how strong our faith is. But I have seen people that didn't have a whole lot of confidence in themselves and, and struggled with assurance, who having gone through horrible tragedies, found out that they had faith that they never knew. They had confidence in God that they hadn't realized before. And so the, the shaking of the nations at the end will reveal who the true sons and daughters of God really are. Yes? Well, it's like the vision in Daniel when he had all the nations that come and then the stone with cut without hands and smushes them all up and becomes a big mountain. It's the same concept. Yeah, and it's also found several times in the Psalms, this whole idea of shaking. 
or what's movable, and there are grammatical links. This amazes me how much some of these scholars know. I don't know how they can. This William Lane, he is. It's like the whole Septuagint is in his mind, which is the Greek Old Testament, and all the usages of these words in intertestamental times, and how it's used here. And he'll pull out a word in Hebrew, in Hebrews that which uses the Septuagint, and he finds where the allusion is by the similar words in the Septuagint. And so uh, that's very telling. And so he said the words that uh, are being used here came from Haggai, but the concepts are found a lot of different places. Let's look up a few other ones. Um, um, Robert, do you want to do one? Sure. Isaiah 13.13. How about Karin? I'm just going to skip around here. Could you look up Joel 2.10? And uh, Linda, could you look up Judges 5, 4, and 5? Okay. Uh, Robert, you had... Um, Isaiah 13, 13. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and the day of his fierce anger. Okay. So there's that term shake again in the in the context of God's coming judgment, that he's going to shake. And it mentions the earth and the heavens. So so some of these concepts that um, are being used in Hebrew is interesting. It's, it's like the Hebrew people had this shared history, and they had these shared scripture, scriptures. And when they had sermons, even if it was in a synagogue, but here this is a Christian gathering with a Christian-inspired writer, they would actually pull together similar themes that might be found anywhere in the Bible that, that use the same term and then incorporate that into their sermon. Okay, so this idea of shaking would call to mind all those verses in the Old Testament that associate it with judgment. And so that's the, the point. It's going to be judgment. Shaking and judgment go together. Now, who, who uh, Karin had one? Yeah. Before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon go dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Okay, so there's the earth shaking in Joel, and Joel's theme was the day of the Lord. In, in the book of Joel, a very interesting piece of literature, because Joel's prof, prophecy was the, the, the day of the Lord. There, the people were saying the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, because they wanted it. And what Joel says, you don't know what you're asking for. Because you're not right with God. When the day of the Lord comes, because they thought when the day of the Lord come, he'd come and judge all those nations around them, which he will. But Joel says, if the day of the Lord came now, you'd be sunk. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> because it, it, would be, it would be terrible because you're not right with God. And so you better get right with God first, and then the day of the Lord will be a good thing. Yes? Um, the big idea of shaking the heaven. I assume it doesn't mean like the heaven where God lives. I'm assuming you mean like the, the stars, the planets, and the yeah. Well, depending on the context, but sometimes when it talks about the heavens and the earth, it's a, a figure of speech that means all of the the whole created order. The entire the heavens and the earth would be a Hebraic way of saying the the created order. All right. So that's that's just the way they talk. Let's let's do Linda's and see what it says. Uh, Judges five. The last one was Joel two ten. Now here's Judges five four and five. 
Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Eden, the earth quaked, the heavens also dripped, even the clouds dripped water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord, this Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. So that again, the Lord comes, the mountains quake, the earth quakes, and so there's this idea of the trembling and terror that comes when God shows up on the scene of history. So those, so what, what I'm saying is that this passage is drawing on that shared literary background that they had. And so that if you really know the Bible well, when you see the shaking, the first thing you're going to do is associate with God's coming judgment. Because in all of these passages, the term was linked to God's judgment. Alright? And, um, I had some other passages. Elizabeth, do you want to look up Exodus 19.18 for me? Let me read a little bit here from this uh, fabulous commentary uh, on Hebrews. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. The writer found in the shaking of the earth at Sinai a proleptic event. Remember what a prolepsis is? You don't remember? I told you once. (laughs) I know I explained it to you. Proleptic is a, it's a good word to know because it, it explains a concept that's important in the Bible. A proleptic statement is when you s- use the present, present tense uh, of something that hasn't happened yet. Okay? Um, and the illustration that I give that people can relate to is, is a football one. When you're watching football and it's in the fourth quarter and the other team's up by four touchdowns, the announcer will say, the game is over. It really isn't over. Now that's a prolepsis or a proleptic statement. Now prophecy contains prolepsis. Isaiah uses it a lot. There's many passages in Isaiah that are in a present tense or the present perfect or the perfect tense that have to do with a yet future event. Okay? So that's what he meant by proleptic. Now a proleptic announcement of the day of the Lord. In other words, the day of the Lord is spoken of in the present, but it really hasn't come yet. Uh, that shows, throws nations into confusion and heralds their destruction. Um, yeah, then he talks about some of these passages we looked up. The shaking is a metaphor for the judgment of God executed in history, as in the case of the fall of Babylon announced in Isaiah 13. In the Jewish apocalyptic tradition, which was particularly indebted to Haggai 2.6, the shaking was understood eschatologically with reference to a cataclysmic Final shaking of heaven and earth. And then he lists all of these intertestamental Jewish sources. Uh, within the historical context of Haggai's prophetic ministry, the prophecy of another shaking was a message of encouragement and hope, addressing the future glory of the temple. Haggai, Haggai announced the fall of Babylon, which had been made possible the return from exile, was not the great shaking. That event lay in the near future. In a short time, God will once again shake the heaven and earth and overthrow the nations. The future shaking will be the means by which he will fill his temple with glory and he will rule over his people from that place. Now we realize that for God, a thousand years is like a day and a day is a thousand years. So this still hasn't happened. Even though it's announced in a short time, it hasn't happened yet. Because it won't be totally fulfilled until Jesus himself is the one who comes and fills the temple with his glory. All right? And then and the, and the future judgment of the nations. So now, um, this is being brought to the minds of these people. 
the judgment of those who reject the old covenant will not be as great. This is a key idea. The judgment of those who reject the old covenant will not be as great as the judgment of those who reject the new covenant. Because they've had better promises, better evidence. God's own son came. Isn't it worse to reject Jesus than to reject Moses? Now, those of you who read the book the, uh, about the gospel of grace will see some of that in there. You'll see the passion. That's one of the most wonderful books I've ever read about the gospel. Oh, and I thought of a new thing to say. <laughs> this is funny. I was, I was being interviewed by a, a seminary, or no, a Bible college student. Somebody, well, actually it was, uh, Catherine Johnson who works for, uh, Jan. And she, she had a job, she had, to, for a class she had to interview a pastor about what I thought was important about being a pastor. And so I, I think I told her about the gospel, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Alright, so she, she says, I was saying something about God's, my view of salvation as an act of God. And, and she said, well, are you a five point Calvinist? And I says, yes, but let me tell you my five points. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Aren't those good five points? I mean, those are the ones we really should be emphasizing. This tulip thing just gets all kinds of, uh, you know, d- discussion and confusion and, uh, you know, then you have to caveats, you know. So I'm just going to say I'm a five point, or, or uh, I told Keith about it and he went on a blog and said, I'm a five point Christian and use those five. <laughs> so if you uh, want to know those five points, read the book, Whatever Happened to the God- Doctrines of Grace. I mean, no, the Gospel of Grace by Boyce. He explains all five of the solas of the Reformation. And my claim is if we would go back to those, we would be spared the apostasy that's going on. Those are our safety net, those five solas. And you can use those to judge things as far as a filter. Okay? For example, the glory of God alone. If you, you can look at a lot of things going on in the church and ask, is this to the glory of God alone? Or is this to the glory of man? Or is it man somehow being exalted in this? Right? Uh, scripture alone. Is the scripture sufficient? Or are we adding other authorities that we, that we're looking to almost giving them the weight of scripture? Is that, is that how we see it? Grace alone. My article, once you get it, the article is about monergism and synergism. The reformers taught monergism. What that means is that salvation is fully of God. It's not a cooperative effort between man and God. Most of the evangelical movement today believes in synergism. Uh, Jim Bukowski was telling me that she, he gets this sky angel or one of these networks where he can get all this Christian stuff, which is like 95% heresy. But it's a good heresy research channel to get. <laughs> Anyhow... Um, he, he was watching the Azusa Street. They have live coverage of Azusa Street. And he says, you know who they are glorifying at Azusa Street? Finney. Finney, 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 the greatest revivalist ever. Nobody in the history of American theology had a higher view of man and his ability than Finney. And he believed that we, man could create the millennium. He believed that man could perfectly obey all of God's laws, just as, as we are, even as sinners. 
And, and uh, Finney was man-centered, 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 man-centered. And talk about, yeah, he's almost a monergist, man alone. I mean, he gives God a little bit of a role in salvation, but very, very little. So now they're at Azusa Street talking about the power of man. And what Jim said he heard them saying was this. God's already done everything he's going to do. He did his part. So if something's not happening, then we, we have to do it. You know, if we do the right things, we'll have this great revival. It's all going to be because we did finally did our part. That's their theology. Brothers and sisters, that is synergism. That is the doctrine that the Roman Catholic Church taught. That is what Trent used to anathematize Luther, Calvin, and every other reformer. And synergism is clearly the doctrine of Rome. And so the evangelical church has adopted synergism as almost a mantra. And, and you should see the nasty emails I, I get on this one. There's, well, that one guy, Dick, you saw that? Unbelievable. Just trashing me. Just, just nasty. Calling me a, a coward and blah, blah, blah. He, he, he was just blowing steam. He was so mad because I said that Finney had some problems. So I sent him a quote of Finney that says this. There is nothing in religion, says Finney, beyond the ordinary powers of nature. Revival is not a miracle. It's it's the result of the proper use of means. So in other words, we already have everything we need. It's like an engineering thing. If we figure out how to do it, we can do anything. That's Finney. And I sent it to the guy and he goes, well, Finney had some other things. And then he gets... It's just, so I, I, I could reply, he was so angry. He, the guy's just like this basher, angry, nasty. Be, and so I said, fine. I finally, the last email, I said, go, I, I'm not going to change your mind. So you go believe in the power of man all you want, but I'm going to put my hope in the grace of God. All right? Now, so the reformers taught grace alone. Grace some, with something else added to it is not grace alone. And, and, and as I show in the article, and I'm, I'm welcome, I would love welcome feedback when you get the, the CIC article. It's in the mail. What I show in the article is that any way you conceive synergism, a strange things happen. And it happens every single time, no matter how you explain it. When you have synergism, the only part that matters is man's. That's the only part that matters. Do you know why? Because in a synergistic system, the part that God does is done equally for all people at all times. So, I give you the analogy, it's like God is the power company and he wired everybody's house to electricity universally. And, and, and then there's a switch in there. So God did all his part. He wired up all the houses. Now, if you throw the switch, the light goes on. So in that kind of system, if you go down the street and the light's on, you know the reason it's on is because of the man living in the house. Not because of anything the power company did. That's synergism. And most of us probably believed it most of our lives if we weren't taught any differently. It's sort of the default position. We assume we did it. Now, monergism and grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, and the glory of God alone says, no, God did it. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end. And now man can give all the glory to God. Yes? Well, it's also a front to his sovereignty because... God is choosing not to save a lot of people. And we we don't accept that. You know, we, we always take the analogy that God should be like the government treating everybody equally. He treats nobody equally. 
God should be like the government. I, well, let's pray that he isn't. <laughs> and the fact, that, the fact that God is sovereign and, and doesn't operate to our idea of fairness, especially American Democratic, Democratic yeah. Republican fairness. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, there's that conflict there, and we think, no, no, he should be. You know, we, we've got these ideas of fairness and equality. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah. He doesn't operate. He right. If you, if you have questions about this and it's, you're struggling with it, because I know a lot of people are, please read the book by Boyce. Okay? It's very biblical. And you don't have to agree with him. But at least, I think we as supposed Protestants, people aren't protesting anymore, so we, I suppose we shouldn't be called that, but I'm still protesting Rome. We would do well if we think the Reformation was a good thing. Wouldn't it be good to find out what it was about? Shouldn't we know what the doctrines of the Reformation were? You may still decide you don't agree with them, and you might decide Rome was right on certain points. Uh, that's between you and the Lord and in the Scripture. The Scripture has to decide it. But I would say, learn it. Find out what the Reformation doctrines were and why they were. And that, was there a reason why Luther thought it was important to teach monergism and to reject synergism? For the simple reason that the Catholic Church had a system of works and indulgences. And they claimed to control salvation. They had within their system salvation. And they could dish it out as they saw fit or withhold it as they saw fit. And Luther saw that to be an abusive system. And he, and if he, he knew that if salvation is an act of God alone, the church has no power anymore over you. The church can't sell it. They can't buy it. They can't control it. They can't withhold it. They have nothing to say about it. It's, it's from God. And when people believe the gospel, God uses that. Um, that's how he saves people is through the gospel of grace. And then God gets all the glory. Uh, the glory of God alone. And I think that the same way we don't understand a lot of things, we have feelings. We believe our feelings until Scripture comes and we... And we are to interpret our feelings through Scripture because Scripture is true, our feelings just are. While it often looks to us, it appears to us, as we haven't been taught that it's synergistic, it's just because we're interpreting the things that, the events that happened through a poor understanding. Sure. And one, you know, I think we experience it in a way that it feels synergistic. And that's common, and that's a common experience across the board in Christianity. We know, however, though, even though it feels synergistic, because God says in his word that his word is true, and our feelings conform itself and must conform yeah. itself to the truth of God's right. revealed word. That's what I claim in my article, that we need to not follow our feelings, but we need to follow the word. Ephesians 2.8. If you want to know the one, one verse that for the solas, the five solas, I hope you join me in being a five-point Christian. Sola, 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 sola. The solas are in Ephesians 2.8. It says, not of yourselves. It's not of yourselves. By grace through faith, that not of yourselves. Is that clear? It's not of yourselves. So who gets the glory? God. Ryan. A couple of things that are real interesting. Number one is, 
Um, the sermon's going to be about this today. <laughs> well, <laughs> see, I, I was just priming a pump yeah. for you. I was doing some research, and I'm going to begin this sermon today by giving you a couple quotes from Charles Spurgeon. And the interesting thing is Spurgeon, and the reason why one of the reasons Spurgeon is so popular still is because number one, he's eloquent; number two, he's biblical; number three, he's still he was one that held to God's grace, and he encountered a situation that is totally analogous to what we're in right now. It's called the, I don't know if anybody's oh the downgrade controversy. The downgrade controversy, that's exactly what we've got. That's exactly what we have, is, is taking the Bible out of the pulpit, taking the grace of God out of the pulpit, and starting to uh, gear all teaching towards man. And a couple, I mean, I had, he's so quotable, I had about 20 quotes I could have got, but I had to narrow it down to two. But one of them was what we were talking about earlier. He says, preach the doctrine of grace. He goes, the modern religionist, which was, at that time was someone who, you know, kind of, Dis- disavow the Bible and the grace of God. Yeah. They'll be worked up into a satanic fury if you start preaching the sovereign grace of God. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. That's what happened. They got mad at me like that. They're just, they're just, just so angry. If they were physically present, they'd probably punch you. But you know what? The other thing about about feelings is, is at first I totally agree that the feelings isn't synergistic. But the more you're awakened to the sovereign grace of God. Yeah. The feelings start to follow. I start to, you know what? Yeah. I'm not holding myself by myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it's good. Experience starts to follow because you start to see yeah. yourself and you start to say, you know what? If the only reason I'm keeping going is because of the sovereign grace of God. Yeah, exactly. And the other problem is we don't have a, a serious enough view of what sin is. Exactly. We don't really think sin is that big of a deal. That Once you are awakened to the grace of God and your ineptitude and your, your, your fallenness, you start to see, boy, I, I am wretched. But by the grace of God, there go I. And, and it reflects in the music. Uh, I've been listening. To, uh, there's some music I, I had from some years ago. I was listening to it. It was nice music, but it was written by Christians who don't understand the gospel. And it's all about, it's almost like bragging songs. I will always serve the Lord with my whole heart. Stuff like that. I mean, that's a, that's a nice sentiment, but what makes you think you're going to do that? There was one that uh, Carla was going to sing, and she wouldn't sing it until she changed the words. Because <laughs> one, one of the phrases was, and all I do, I honor you. Um, and, Car- and we sing that, but we change the word. And so Carla said, I can't say that. That'd be a lie. I wish it was true. She says, so I'll sing, and all I do to honor you. And so that's why we changed the word. Because it was, it was bragging. It was a bragging song. Yes, Linda. Um, you had mentioned Ephesians 2.8. Yes. And I just was reading a commentary on that recently about, um, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourself. And... Um, you know, it says in my notes here, no human effort can contribute to our salvation as the gift of God, meaning that it is not through works. Right. Well, it's not it, through works. no human effort. Okay. Right. No, human effort. no human effort. So none is none. Meaning that we can't earn it. Well, and it means we don't contribute to it. Well, I don't think that's what that says. I think it's, it says because then it follows that it's not as a result of works. 
That's true. Not as a result of works. But we are His workmanship, created unto good works that He before ordained that we would walk in them. And so, there's a lot of uh, commentary on that passage. And, and, and uh, Boyce offers commentary on it. Now, the question they have is, is grace the gift of, uh, by grace through faith, it's not of yourselves, but it's the gift of God. So they have some, the synergists will say things like, well, the grace is the gift of God and the faith is the part we contribute. And that's how they have their synergism. God gives grace, we, we contribute faith. But Boyce says, grace and faith come to us from God through the gospel. It's not something we conjure up in our own abilities. Have you read the Boyce book? No. <laughs> You're reading your study Bible. Okay. <laughs> That's good. Yes. We then say that we have no more to do with our rebirth than we have to do with our birth. Yeah, that's a good point. And actually, that's it said it's like that in John one. Remember where John says, "Not of the will of man." I think that's an important analogy that Jesus brings up to Nicodemus because it's so obvious that he couldn't do it himself. Yeah. Well, could I be born myself? <laughs> well, what exactly? And what about the one where the disciples run about the rich man being saved? It would be, be, be easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. And what did, the, what, did the, uh, what did they say? Well, who can be saved? Well, who can be saved? And what did Jesus say? With, no, he says, with God, with God, all things are possible. All right. Okay, so we're going to have plenty to talk about in the next few weeks. I'm sorry you never read your verse, Elizabeth. I'm sure it was a good one. Okay, we'll see you upstairs in a half hour. <laughs>